This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, the very best bits of today's show. It is a Friday, the 19th of January. Going to kick off with big economic news from the UAE. Deals with Pakistan, number one, rolling over $2 billion worth of loans to Pakistan and a number of new infrastructure projects that are going to be fronted up in Pakistan by DP World. Details on that to come. Uh, Plus, energy. Story breaking late yesterday, we had Saudi Arabia Stock Exchange buying a 33% stake in the Dubai Mercantile Exchange and rebranding it, dropping the name Dubai, adding the name Gulf Mercantile Exchange. The thoughts of the energy expert Amina Bakker. Then, love this interview with His Excellency Omar Al-Sawadi. He's an undersecretary at the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology. Made in the UAE. Brandy's been speaking to him. And finally, talking branding with the media expert Sarah Al-Sayeg. We have a new list of the top brands in the region. And surprisingly, to us at least, the oil companies came out on top. All that's come. First up there, let's jump straight into those big economic stories. Busy and varied morning on the show. This morning we're getting our questions about various surveys answered. We're looking at new federal numbers coming out uh, when it comes to how much money the country is making. Uh, We are having a look at how much money we are sharing with other people in the form of aid. And we are looking uh, at a surprise stake being taken in a local and now regional exchange. But it is also the last day of Davos and therefore it is our last chance to go yodeltastic. That obviously is Hocus Pocus from the Dutch rock band Focus, uh, which is a song that has had several lives, originally released at 1971, knowing for its yodeling uh, in an otherwise uh, generally rock tune. Tom, did you not recognise it? Why did you look askance? I, I, it, that's not on my playlist. Um, that is not high on my Spotify shuffle. And yet... It was indeed Nike's musical signature for the 2010 FIFA World Cup. Really? Yeah, apparently so. So says Wikipedia, therefore it must be true. News to me. I I love the fact that it came out in 1971, which is the year that the World Economic Forum launched. Serendipity. They must have known in 53 years... We're going to get royalties from having our song played out at a radio station in Dubai when Klaus Schwab takes to the dais. Oh, you want to invite us to dinner parties? We're fun with these random facts. It is the last day of Davos, and like other conferences, people actually turn up. They don't just turn up. They have some of the biggest named panels, do they not? Yeah, it's a belter. They're going to finish with a flourish today. The last one kicks off at 11 a.m. Switzerland time, so 2 p.m. the UAE, and it's on the, the, the global economy, and they have got Christine Lagarde from the European Central Bank. Kristalina Georgieva, head of the IMF. Mohammed Al Jadan, Saudi finance minister. I could go on. They've got a billionaire. Of course, they have. It's Davos. David Rubenstein, co-founder of the private equity firm, the Carlyle Group, uh, the president of Singapore, and the finance minister of Germany. So, yeah, Davos still pulling in the big punters, even on day five. And not many conferences have a stellar lineup. Not many. Conferences make it past lunch on day one with decent speakers. 
they've got A-listers on day five. Well, if you've dusted on your off your puffer jacket or your Max Mara camel coat, you want to get decent wear out of it, don't you? Apparently you get a free bubble hat as well. A free bubble hat? Yeah. Apparently Zurich Insurance every year provide a bright blue knitted bubble hat that you can help yourself to from a hole in the wall. Um, everyone does, and it, become, it apparently becomes a little sort of badge of honour. And if you're seen wearing it later on, everyone's like, oh, right, I get you. Well, you'd want that, though, for the price, wouldn't you? Companies are charged 27,000 Swiss francs per person to go. So that's 20, that's 20, that's almost 21,000 pounds sterling per person. Oh, no wonder we haven't been sent. <laughs> I know that there is, like, basically a Davos book bag, but it is considered very declassé to actually carry it at Davos. Because everyone already knows you're at Davos, clearly, because uh, they're at Davos too. You carry it after Davos. They must have branded gilet as well. It can't just be a bobble hat. Merch. You'd get limited wear of it in Dubai, wouldn't you? You'd get ski, ski Dubai. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you imagine Alpha Tame employees who'd been at Davos, for example, you could just take to the slopes and get second wear. We are looking at what's happening in Davos today. We are also having a look at what's happening in Pakistan. Uh, we've been speaking to one economist, well, two economists actually on this matter, one here and one in Pakistan because there is a UAE-Pakistan link. Yeah, two things. So firstly, a $2 billion loan from the UAE to Pakistan. It was due for repayment this month in January, but the UAE has rolled it over. It is effectively aid from the UAE to Pakistan. It's a loan, not a grant, but it is a, on favourable terms. So there's that at the same time in Davos, you've got a deal being signed between the UAE and Pakistan to build infrastructure. DP World is fronting up this one. And you've got a picture of Sultan Ahmed bin Salayam, who is there in Davos, and he has been signing that deal. So lots happening between the UAE and Pakistan. We've been speaking this morning to Dr. Kakan Hassan Najib. He's an economist, joined us live from Lahore, wearing a gilet, but not branded with the World Economic Forum. He's a public policy advisor. We asked him why these deals are significant. Now we are more than just buying um, debt from the world. What we are trying to do is also have non-debt creating instruments, move on towards investments. We want, went to Davos trying to find monies. We are, uh, you know, we inked an um, uh, agreement with the um, US, um, uh, UAE on ports uh, previously. Now we are moving on the logistics side. Why is logistics important? Trade from Pakistan, if it was to happen all the way into Central Asia, um, has to have ports and the railroad network and the road network working. You know, trying to um, show to the world that we have a big um, agriculture that we can help with in terms of food security, and especially food security of the Middle East. That's the view from Pakistan. What about the view from the UAE? Here's Dan Richards, senior economist at Emirates MBD. Rollover of the UAE's $2 billion of Pakistani central bank will, along with ongoing support from others such as the IMF, it'll help ensure economic stability in the coming years as Pakistan continues to recover from its economic crisis. Meanwhile, the $3 billion or so in investment agreements we've seen from the UAE and Dubai into Pakistan, which will go into logistics infrastructure and economic zones in particular, that will help open up uh, Pakistan as a gateway to Asia, facilitating growth and trade between the UAE and the region. 
Encouraging words finally on this coming out of the IMF on Pakistan. $700 million dispersed earlier on this month from the IMF to Pakistan and often quite critical of Pakistan's economic policy. But Antoinette Sayeg of the IMF says there are now tentative signs of activity picking up and external pressures easing in Pakistan. Continued strong ownership remains critical to ensure the current momentum continues. But... A good start to the year, you'd argue, for Pakistan. Elections, of course, coming up on February the 8th. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Amina Back is with us in the studio from Energy Intelligence, Deputy Bureau Chief and Chief OPEC Correspondent. Morning, Amina. Good morning, Richard. Let's start with the breaking news late last night that... Saudi Arabia's Tadawal, the exchange there, is buying a 33% stake in one of our exchanges, the Dubai Mercantile Exchange. And not only are they buying a stake, they're changing the name, dropping Dubai and making it the Gulf Mercantile Exchange. What's the story? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting uh, move, Richard, for them to do this. Obviously, from the Saudi side, they see it as a very uh, good investment for them to be buying part of the exchange. Of course, they wanted to change the name to be more uh, general. Uh, That's why they picked Gulf. But I also feel with Saudi Arabia, um, there is a kind of search for benchmarks that would provide a a future um, fair price uh, for oil. As you know, that um, Brent has been uh, reacting in the same way. The market really, the market structure changed a lot post-COVID. And normally, under current circumstances where we'd see heightened geopolitical risk, a tightened market in terms of supply, you would see prices at a different level. Perhaps that's partly due to the benchmark. Perhaps it's the composition of of the market. You have smaller individual traders that are entering the market. So there's a structural element to this. And perhaps this move is um, for Saudi Arabia to uh, examine how a different benchmark uh, works. But primarily, I would say they did it for investment purposes. So what are the Saudis buying? The Dubai Mercantile Exchange, the Dubai Merc. I was looking into the history books. It's a teenager, 16 years old at the moment, formed as a joint venture between the UAE or Dubai and the the NYMEX, the New York Mercantile Exchange. There's been lots of takeovers and changes in shareholding. The candid truth, Brandy and I were talking earlier on this morning before we came on air. When was the last time we mentioned the Dubai Mercantile Exchange? When was the last time that we or other media quoted their Oman futures crude contract? Yeah, it's true. Maybe that hasn't been uh, getting as much attention in uh, in mass media. Um, however, I mean, if you're really into the energy markets, we always compare and look at these benchmarks. This would perhaps uh, put it more on uh, on on the radar, uh, expand the exposure, uh, and so on. So it's a it's a good chance for this um, benchmark to become more prominent with the last move. Okay, let's talk about physical oil. Two headlines on Bloomberg over the past 24 hours, and they appear to be conflicting. Uh, First of all, OPEC chief says oil demand will defy predictions of a peak and will remain robust. Uh, But then you've got also on Bloomberg over the past 24 hours, uh, oil squeeze of 2023 turns into a surplus, a warning of too much oil, says Bloomberg. So which is it? We haven't got enough or we've got too much? 
Um, well, you always get this kind of conflict between the OPEC numbers and everyone else's estimates. Um, OPEC, for example, thinks that there's going to be a growth in demand of around 2.2 million barrels a day for this year. Uh, at our own uh, estimates at Energy Intelligence, we expect demand growth to be about 1.1 million. Aramco says it's 1.5. So you see all the numbers that everyone else has are, um, I would say, significantly lower than the the OPEC estimate. The issue with this year, um, Richard, I think that there's a lot of non-OPEC supply growth that is coming into the market, members that are outside of the OPEC Plus uh, agreement. So it might be a little bit difficult for OPEC Plus to return some of those cuts that they made last year and are effective this year back into uh, the market. Um, Demand is something that uh, everyone gets wrong and has estimates uh, about it, so it remains to be seen. Uh, But so far, I would say to remain on the conservative side. What about more medium to long term? The International Energy Agency in Paris reckons that oil demand will peak in 2030 as we transition to renewable energies and electric cars. Oil still predominantly a transportation fuel. But Heitemar Gase of OPEC, the Secretary General, says no, there's still going to be huge demand for oil, not just for transportation, but for things like shampoo and the bottles that it comes in. What's your take more medium to long term? Medium to long term, I think oil will still be relevant. Uh, I'm not taking OPEC's extremely bullish view. It's more nuanced than that. I think on the transport sector, yes, you will have a transition into uh, cleaner uh, fuels, but oil is used for everything that we touch. People say uh, love makes the world go round. I think oil makes the world go round. Everything uh, we uh, use on a daily basis has a component of petrochemicals, which are made of uh, oil. So demand will stay still be there. And you're seeing a lot of the Gulf companies here divert their oil production more into the downstream sector. And that's how to extract value. And that's how to remain relevant for the long run. Finally, it's all well and good producing the oil. You've got to get it to people. That goes on ships and a lot of it goes through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, or rather it did. Reading that this week we had the first day in, is it history or recent history, that there hasn't been an LNG, liquefied natural gas ship, going through uh, the Red Sea at the moment because of the, the military situation there. Why hasn't the oil price spiked on the back of this? You touched on this earlier, but why not? That's uh, the kind of story of, uh, of, of this month, uh, if you may, the attacks that we're seeing in the Red Sea. And I did expect uh, oil to spike on the geopolitical risk and the fact that um, um, less supplies are going through the Red Sea. But the market seems to say that there are no interruptions in supply so far, so they haven't been reacting. Personally, I think they're underestimating uh, the risk uh, massively. Um, I know that there are not so big concerns from Saudi Arabia and the UAE currently, uh, but insurance costs have gone up quite a bit. And if you have a prolonged situation, this heightened insurance cost is going to transfer to the consumer. So we might see an increase uh, in the coming future if the situation isn't resolved. Amina Bakum is the chief OPEC correspondent for Energy Intelligence Group. Follower on X, as I did, that is where I learned about the DME Saudi Arabia deal last night. Appreciate your time, Amina. Thanks very much indeed for joining us this morning. 
you, Richard. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we are looking at some new numbers uh, which show us where we are in one of our strategies. A couple of years ago, uh, the UAE set out its stall and said that it would hit 300 billion dirhams in terms of industrial contribution to GDP by 2031. Uh, We said that in 2021. New figures show that the UAE has increased the amount that industry is contributing to GDP by almost 50% in the past two years and indeed is now coming in at just under 200 billion dirhams. Very pleased to be joined by His Excellency Omar Al-Sawadi, Undersecretary of the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology. Good morning. It's lovely to speak to you. Good morning. So we have this rise in industrial uh, contribution to GDP coming in at just under 200 billion dirhams uh, last year. That's nearly half as much again as was generated in 2021. What's driving that? Well, I think having a concentrated effort, uh, all the, the, the uh, you know, parties working together, we had a clear strategy. We had priority sectors. We had a number of initiatives, a uh, number of enablers, uh, the Mekhtar in, in the Emirates uh, initiative especially uh, drove a lot of these activities. Uh, we, we've had a number of opportunities available for local and international investors. Uh, and basically just, uh, you know, uh, the demand, uh, the growth uh, that's in UAE, um, the environment that's being created, um, the policies, uh, the standards, all of that ecosystem uh, for industry is really encouraging and promoting uh, the growth, uh, the technology, um, you know, the advanced technology uh, drive uh, with our uh, industrial uh, technology transformation program. All of these efforts uh, have really contributed to this growth. And also uh, all the work that's been uh, done on the SEPA front, uh, the comprehensive economic agreements uh, that we play uh, a strong part in, in the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology, really opens up more markets for our uh, industries and and really uh, promotes that growth. Uh, When we talk about the SEPAs, that has been obviously a a huge focus, um, the amount that have been signed. There's still an awful lot on the table to be signed. Which countries are going to make the biggest difference, do you think, to markets for the things that are made here? I think uh, we're trying to to pivot to to a number of markets in, in Africa, in Europe, uh, Australia is on the on the plans. I think uh, you know we're we're trying to to hit uh, like Dr. Thani mentioned, ninety uh, percent world trade. Uh, so right now uh, there are a number of uh, negotiations uh, taking place. Uh, our team is uh, currently in Vietnam uh, finalizing uh, that discussion. So uh, they're they're on a quite a fast pace uh, to open up. Uh, a large number of markets for uh, UAE um, businesses. And that comes at a time when we're seeing uh, some manufacturing downturns in other parts of the world. The Beige Book that's just come out in the US shows a bit of a slump in manufacturing. Uh, Germany um, uh, looking at recessionary numbers and obviously Germany, the big manufacturer of Europe, their numbers hasn't been good either. Is the slowdown in global trade and therefore production a concern for the UAE, or is this reshaping of who makes what a bit of an opportunity? I would say more of the latter, the opportunity. There's always, uh, of course, there are always cycles, uh, but there are also some competitive advantages uh, that we try to focus on. Uh, there's also the emphasis on sustainability, all the momentum that came out of COP28, 
um, th there are a lot of discussions on whether it's greening of industry or the industry that works on uh, the creation of the energy, especially with hydrogen, with renewables. Uh, the, the experience that we have uh, anyway with some of our leading companies, the relationships we have with some maybe strategic countries and, and strategic uh, uh, large corporations, those are the, the competitive uh, advantages uh, that we would like to take uh, you know, advantage of. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we focus on specific, like I said, sectors and, and uh, you know, focus on the sectors that still have the demand and the growth, uh, whether it's now or in the uh, mid and long term. Well, which particular products, I mean, you mentioned hydrogen there, is seeing that growth? Industrial exports up 17% since the start of this strategy. Are we sending out more of the same stuff or are we sending out different stuff? I think uh, probably both. And then when it comes to the same stuff, it's more uh, sustainable uh, of, uh, you know, kinds of the same stuff. Uh, all of our metals, uh, all of our, uh, you know, production for our products, are seeing uh, uh, a direction into the sustainability part. There's a lot of focus on uh, recycling feedstock. Uh, we have a number of uh, companies that are working on developing electrolyzers for the hydrogen. Uh, that comes with uh, discussions on, of course, uh, eventually the hydrogen offtake. Uh, there's also, uh, there are projects, plenty of projects that some of our companies such as Mustar are working on internationally and that would need uh, demand on the solar side. Um, so uh, these are maybe some of the key uh, areas. Uh, metals is uh, continues to grow. Food, of course, FNB is something that uh, we have a strong industry for here. And uh, when it comes to the petrochemical side, there's also, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, still a growth in that area. Uh, with our competitive advantages that we have here in the OE. Well, it's not just products going out, obviously. It's making stuff to be consumed locally and encouraging that. You've done a lot of import substitution. Uh, what mm. products and what areas are you targeting now for people to buy locally made goods rather than internationally? Well, you know, on one side, it's all the FMB. Uh, that's one focus area on medicine, uh, on medical equipment. Uh, the businesses themselves uh, that run uh, these large factories and companies also need a lot of machinery, when it, when it, whether it's uh, electrical equipment, um, mechanical equipment such as valves. Uh, this whole drive with the Mekit and the Emirates uh, really focused on, one, what is the demand for these large procurers? And then what is it that we can make uh, here in, in the UAE competitively uh, and sustainably? Uh, so these are some of the key areas that uh, uh, saw the growth. And I know as part of the Operation 300 Billion project, getting more things made here as part of various supply chains has been huge. World focused on supply chains at the moment because of what's happening in the Red Sea. What else would you like from a logistics point of view to be made here? What could we be doing in onshoring that we're not doing yet? I think, uh, you know, food, uh, when it comes to agriculture and, and uh, agri-farming, uh, there's still a, a lot of uh, growth uh, that is projected. Uh, that demand is quite high. Uh, we're, we've only looked at uh, 10%, at least we've targeted for the time being, 10% of our um, yeah, imports. Uh, so uh, whatever we're doing right now uh, is still only a small, small portion. And I think with that confirmation, with the de-risking, of uh, the demand coming out of, of the large procurers with, you know, one key thing is the financing. We did manage to, to get 
uh, over 5 billion dirhams in financing. And that's that's a, a, quite an increase compared to the year before uh, with more institutions coming in uh, with the uh, uh, kind of the, the maturity of uh, the business, uh, the feasibility studies, the opportunities that are there. We're seeing more uh, uh, financial institutions coming in. We're working, uh, coming off of COP also, we're trying to do more on uh, renewable and sustainable uh, uh, industries. We're working on decarbonizing. And when we look at decarbonizing, of course, that's going to need, whether it's more energy, uh, more advanced technology, uh, and these are the kind of things uh, we're going to be working on. We have to leave it there, unfortunately. His Excellency Omar Al-Suedi, Undersecretary at the Ministry of Industry and Advanced Technology. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. What's in a brand? And what is the importance of brand in 2024? Is it still as important as ever before? Well, uh, rather fortuitously, the latest Brand Finance Global 500 report dropped earlier on this week. It raised a few eyebrows here in the studio. Not so with the... Uh, the world's most valuable brands, Apple, coming out on top of that one uh, this year. Uh, but more with regards to the local brands and bringing it home to uh, the region here, Middle Eastern oil and gas majors, Saudi Aramco and Adnot, maintaining their position as the leading brands in the region, according to the latest uh, uh, the latest Brand Finance Global 500 from Brand Finance. To talk about this one, we've joined. Uh, we've been joined in studio by the uh, Dubai-based branding and communications expert and, of course, entrepreneur, Sarah Al-Sayag, who's been kind enough to join us on a Friday morning. Sarah, great to see you as always. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Lovely to have you with us here in studio. And just wanted to get your thoughts. I'll tell, you, tell you for why. It's because when we got this report, and we should have, you know, you, you look back, there's, there's no major change there when it comes to Middle Eastern brands and, and, and the most valuable. But I think as soon as it dropped and the question went out in studio, OK, what is the most valuable brand in the Middle East? And almost immediately, all three of us here in studio went, well, it's Emirates, isn't it? Because of its sort of global expansion and its global presence, etc. And yet it's not. It's the oil and gas companies. It's your Saudi Aramco's. It's your Adnox. Why do they sort of pip the aviation companies when it comes to brand and brand value? Well, for one, we would probably think it's Emirates because of the connection with us as consumers and the connection to the community, to the culture. And it's a brand that is more usable by whether it's B2C, B2B groups, individuals and all of that. Whereas if you look at the other side, um, the surprise comes because these brands are very much business oriented, very much um, heavy in terms of specific communication or specific uh, type of conversations that would be related to these brands. So the surprise comes when you when you understand that, oh, well, this brand is now gaining more popularity or this brand is now coming up to the market. It means that they are working so much more to have that brand come out. It means that they are working on the other end of it, of trying to communicate what they're trying to do. When you're looking at uh, global markets, when you're looking at uh, what type of business is really rising and driving, these brands are very heavyweight within that in those industries, And but they're not talked about enough. Yeah. And so it's actually great to see that shift because now 
people will be more curious to understand more about them and to understand the value that these brands are giving in and what they are trying to say. It is interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, you look at something like Saudi Aramco, massive company, as is Adnoc as well, but also STC, uh, the Saudi telecom company that comes in in third in the list here. Um, Again, very strong regional players, if you like, but with global aspirations. And we've seen, obviously, Adnoc got um, a lot of mention during COP28 this year. Saudi Aramco has sponsored a number of big sports events and other events around the world as well. Is this part of a sort of globalization of these brands? Absolutely. And it's part of connecting as well. So it may be seen to many as a dry business and not as fun to talk about as STC, if you want. STC have been known to do a lot of fun and creative um, TV ads and, you know, connecting differently because they're a telecom. But when it comes to the other type of businesses, they're very much drier in that sense of building trust and uh, just focusing on communicating straight up what the business is rather than really involving. So for them to be involved in events like this that are very relevant to them, I must say, is a way for their brands to get more familiarized with people who see it, see the logo, understand more of the business. Um, COP, for example, has been attended by even the general public. It Mm. did not have to be someone who is involved within that industry. And so for them to be in those those kind of events and in those conferences is, is also really a way to connect so much more further than just the I, I would say dry communication yeah. of business. There's nothing dry about it. It's extremely high value in what they do, but to the general public, that's what I mean. Quick word about the uh, the world's most valuable brands. Apple surpassing Amazon to claim the title of the world's most valuable brand uh, for the first time. So Amazon dropping down to fourth in the list. The list reads as Apple, Microsoft, Google, and then Amazon, and no Tesla in the top 10. Any big surprises there? Not so much, I'd have to say. Um, Apple with its innovation, Apple with its uh, continuous different messaging, um, always making sure to stay on top of the game with creating the story. And it's not just we're launching something new. They create a story about every single message that they want to send out. And you see brands saying that, or even individuals saying, oh, Apple says the same story every time they launch their new phone uh, to make it seem like it's completely new. But it actually... People have built such a connection with them. People have been following the story and have been involved so much in it with the devices that they use, with the image that this company presents to them. And it is it used to be only for the designers and for people that are creative, but not anymore. Now everybody wants to own that. So I I'm, I'm, wouldn't be surprised because the... The interests are very much changing with using the brands and with the younger generation, with content creation, um, with all the boom in AI and technology. It's always been Mm. one of the top. So I'm not very surprised that it is coming up in the lead. Let's talk rebrand and the theory behind rebranding. The story out this morning, in fact, Abu Dhabi's United Printing and Publishing, they're rebranded to the E7 group following its listing on the local bourse there. This follows a number of rebrands recently. And, of course, in recent times, Microsoft to, uh, uh, sorry, Twitter to X was one of the big ones that we talked about, and Atislat to E and. And talking of that, Atislat by E and uh, making it uh, fourth onto the list of the regional value brands as well. What's the thinking behind a rebrand and, and, and how cautious do you have to be? 
I love the subject. It's my favorite, absolutely. Um, well, rebranding can often be really, really exciting for a brand. And my main question would always be, why would you rebrand? As, as any brand that is in the market, whatever industry you're in, if you are thinking of changing, you need to understand the why. You've created a logo, you've created a tone of voice, you've created an image, and it's a whole persona that whether it's your clients, your partners, your, your consumers uh, connect to. So understanding why you need to rebrand is the more important than rebranding itself. And oftentimes than not, the reasons may not always be based on hard facts and may not always be based on research. A lot of the reasoning for rebranding is based on personal preference of we need to update because we're bored. Mm. Um, that is That always comes with a high risk. Um, but obviously with global companies, with uh, even local companies that want to make sure that their position is stronger, rebranding is important when you have the right message to say. Mm. That is important at that time. But if it's usually the sake of rebranding just to have a refreshed look, then that really needs to be studied very well. <laughs> Sarah, we're going to leave it there out of time on this occasion. But great to see you as always. Thanks for joining us live here in the studio. Sarah El-Sayeg, branding comms expert and entrepreneur based here in Dubai. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.